First Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who you prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that you have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Well, what fills you with awe? What really just makes your senses come alive and make you stop and just look? Maybe it's the the little, almost random, but perfect movements of a very new baby. You sit there in awe of this little creature. Maybe it's the latest video game that you've bought and you're playing for the first time on your high-definition screen. Maybe it's a fully immersive cinema experience in the IMAX. It's just massive. Maybe it's amazing colors and smells of a market full of the hustle and bustle of people. For me, nature tends to be something that gives me a great sense of awe. On our recent family trip to New Zealand, there were lots and lots of natural wonders for me to turn my gaze upon. High frozen peaks glowing in the moonlight of an almost supermoon, towering redwood forests, rolling green hills and mountains covered in thousands of sheep, new birds to enjoy, rivers to watch, wonders to behold. I can spend hours just enjoying creation. For me, it's a beautiful way of recognizing God, the creator of it all, as I reflect on and experience his greatness, his creativity and his wonder. Maybe you relate. And maybe there's something else for you that creates that sense of awe. Well, as Joe read for us this morning, we're looking at 1 Peter 1, uh, verses 10 to 12. And I'm going to seek to address God's word to us this morning with two main headings and a couple of subheadings. The first is that God's word is awesome. The second is our response to God's word can be awful. With the second point, I want to use two subheadings, which I'll explain as we get there. Filled with awe and extremely disagreeable or or objectionable. As I said, I'll explain that when you get there. But before we head into our passage, let's pray. God, as we come together to hear you speak through the preaching of your word, would you prepare our hearts to learn from and to love your word? Would we be ruled by it, patient under it, and obedient to it? By your grace, be pleased to reveal yourself to us this morning from your inspired word through the flawed and faltering work of my preaching. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so point one, God's word is awesome. Now, I'll just wrap it up there. 
<laughs> it has always been understood by God's people that God speaks. We see right at the start in Genesis 1, God speaking the world into being at creation. We see God speaking to Adam and Eve. We see him speaking to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to Moses, and on through other prophets. And as we've sung as well this morning, a number of them, and read from some of them, David. It was not only recognized, though, that God spoke, but it was recognized by God's people that God's word would stand and would hold true forever. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, we read, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Or in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 5 to 6, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Our passage this morning is one of those passages in the New Testament that gives us great confidence that the God who is recorded as speaking in the Old Testament continues to be the God who speaks in the New. An encouragement to trust that our God speaks and that we can find his inspired word in the pages of the Bible. Our passage is only a short one, but it opens with a conjunction at verse 10. Considering this salvation. Now, of course, to understand what Peter is saying here, we obviously need to read back a bit. This word, considering, here being like a, a therefore and kids, if we have a therefore, what do we need to do with it? Find out what it's there for. Exactly. <laughs> it's like deer in the headlights when you talk to them. When we looked at the preceding verses a couple of weeks ago, we discovered what this salvation was all about in verses 3 to 9. In summary, this salvation that Peter is talking about is that the Father, God, in his great mercy has given us, his people, new life through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This salvation, through faith, gives us a living hope of an incorruptible inheritance guarded through faith for our ultimate salvation. Despite us not being able to see Christ physically, our faith causes us to trust him through the trials that God sets before us, trials that we can see um, as necessary as they result in the demonstrated genuineness of our faith. And so these trials lead to our joy, and the praise of God's glory now and will lead to praise, honor, and glory to us in Christ when the salvation of our souls is finally obtained for eternity. That's the salvation that Peter is talking about. 
And these last few verses that we read today bring this exploration of our salvation to a close in the letter. A salvation that he emphatically began, Peter that is, talking about by declaring in verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, before he embarked on this great um, explanation of our salvation. In fact, I understand that verses 3 to 12 are actually one big sentence in the Greek. We can look at this group of verses as being about salvation future in verses 3 to 5, salvation present in verses 6 to 9, and now salvation past. Or perhaps more properly, how we can see that our present and future salvation has always been God's plan from the beginning. A bit like Ebenezer Scrooge's Three Ghosts of Christmas. Salvation future, salvation present, salvation past. I'm trying to remember it that way. So that is the context of what Peter is talking about as he goes on in our passage today. Considering this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Well, the prophets here are the writers of the Old Testament scriptures. And of course we see from verse 1 that the people Peter is talking to in this letter are the, the, the yours in this part are the elect, the Christians living as exiles in the world, people whose home is heaven, but who continue to live for God here and now as they await Christ's return. If you are a Christian here today, then that is you too. If you are not, and the salvation I have described just now is foreign to you, please know it can be a salvation that is for you to know personally as well. I implore you to take up the call to repent and believe today that we see in Scripture. And I'd love to talk to you more about it. I think the focus of Peter, as he describes the Old Testament prophets here, is fascinating. I mean, obviously the Old Testament prophets, as we read through them, they received messages that had immediate relevance to God's people at the time. There were oracles of blessing and judgment on God's people for their conduct that they had committed. Promises of the deliverance of Israel from her enemies. Warnings against failing to follow God's laws or bowing down to the various gods of the people around them, which they did time and time again, and, and so on. But interestingly, that is not Peter's focus here. Rather, Peter is saying that the prophets prophesied about the grace that was to be for the people of God many years later. There's a, a great example of this, uh, this dual purpose in the book of Daniel, which we explored when we went through the book of Daniel, if you might remember. Where in, in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel is seeking to understand Jeremiah's prophecies, a different prophet. Um, that's in Jeremiah chapter 25. And it's about how long it would be for their exile before they would return. And Daniel is trying to work out how to apply this prophecy from Jeremiah to the salvation of God's people from their exile in Babylon, where Daniel was. And Daniel certainly searched and inquired carefully as Peter 
describes the activities of the prophets. We see Daniel crying out to God in prayer for understanding. And incredibly, we see God's answer. As he sends the angel Gabriel to speak to Daniel and explain God's words that had been given through the prophet Jeremiah. And we see this in Daniel 9, 20-23, and, and explaining how they were to apply. But it's also clear, as we read uh, those verses, that God was speaking through Daniel and Jeremiah about times in the more distant future as well, to the revelation of the more fulsome salvation of God's people in Christ. And you see that in the verses that follow, in Daniel 24 to 27, where Gabriel explains the Jeremiah prophecy. And you see him speaking about the anointed one, or the Messiah, the Christ, coming. Now you'll have to dig up JR's old sermon on that if it's whet your appetite to explore more. Um, I don't have time to explore that today. That's not where we are. But as an example, it's a good one to see how there is the, the immediate and the future um, being played out in the one uh, time. And if you want a nice, clear example of a prophecy pointing forward to our eternal salvation from Jeremiah, well, we've read a couple this morning. Isaiah 53, is it pretty clear? Uh, we've, we've, and we've seen some of the ones that Peter himself brought out in Acts chapter 2. But Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34 is also a good one. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So the dual focus of prophecy is fascinating to me. And it makes sense that the prophets might have searched and inquired carefully about the prophecy that was given to them for the people of God. But I think it's also fascinating that that is not the focus of the apostle in our text either. See, the purpose of their careful inquiry that Peter talks about is in relation to the person or time that the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Now it's generally evident when we read the Old Testament that the prophets clearly had an eye on the times that they lived in. We've seen that, but we often don't really get much of a window into the day-to-day -day lives of the prophets. At least here we get a tiny glimpse into at least something of what they thought about as they lived in the ancient world. Which, I mean, it was helpful for me just to think about, they, they were actually people that lived in the ancient world. These people we read about in scripture that are just names sometimes, they're people. They walked the earth, they ate food, they talked with people, they watched the sunrise and set just as we do. Peter doesn't tell us how, but he does say that the prophets spent time searching and inquiring carefully in God's revealed word. 
which I guess by there was variously the growing collection of the law, the prophets, and the writings or the Psalms that had gone before them, as well as their time in prayer and, as we've seen in this, speaking with God or his messengers directly. And what for? For how the Spirit of Christ in them predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories to them. The prophets, having been given this amazing news that God would send a saviour, and seeing that God had consistently made these promises to God's people before them, and of course also being painfully aware of how fickle and rebellious the people of God were, despite God's mercies over the centuries, and the miraculous deliverances of his power that they had been a part of. Coming out of Egypt is one of the big ones, but there's a number as we read through the Old Testament. These prophets were trying to discover the who and the when about the Christ. They wanted to know, who is this Savior? Who is the promised Messiah? Who would be the perfect high priest? Who would be the un failing prophet and king of God's people. When will he come? They each got to see in part, but not fully. But they searched and inquired carefully, Peter tells us. And I think Peter's words can help give us some confidence that what we read in the Old Testament is not just a few collected sayings over time. Things that the prophets heard and noted and moved on from. Now the purposes of why God was telling them these specific things was something the prophets wanted to get to the bottom of and explored as much as they could. We can be confident that the oracles and books that have been recorded for us are the carefully inquired about word of God that the Spirit of God wanted to reveal to us about the Christ. That's incredible. But lest we feel too sad for our forefathers about what they might not have got to understand, Peter gives us a second little glimpse into their searching. And that is that it was revealed to them, that is the prophets, that they were not serving themselves, but you elect exiles in the things that have now been announced to you. This again, I think, is just fascinating. The Spirit of God revealed to the prophets the Word of God. But in doing so, the prophets were given us some, some sort of supernatural understanding that while they would search and inquire carefully, there was more that was going to be revealed in time. And as a result, they were serving not just the people of God then and now, in their day, but the people of God into the future. Some kind of, don't worry guys, you'll only see in part, but all will be revealed in time. The full picture will be given. You are laying the foundation, the prophetic foundation for a good news that will be for all the world as the long-remembered promises to Abraham that he would be a blessing to all peoples will be progressively and ultimately brought to fulfillment or will be revealed in time. 
I wonder how that felt. Waiting, wondering. I mean, I think we've got glimpses of that, haven't we, at times as we've, as we've studied the New Testament, to, Old Testament together. I'm, I'm reminded of a sermon about Elijah under a broom tree, just despairing at what was not happening. It must have been really hard to have this insight into what God was doing and yet not have the full picture. But that's the work that the prophet had. And so we come full circle and see that the things that have now been announced to Peter's readers, these things are the message of salvation that has now been announced from 1 Peter, 3 to 9. Of course, not only there. The Jesus and the apostles had been proclaiming that, as we'll see. These things is the message proclaimed. Though, uh, through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So while the prophets inquired and searched carefully, they were instructed by the Holy Spirit that they would only get there in part, as recorded in the Old Testament. The rest of the revelation of God was to come through Jesus and his apostles, recorded for Peter's readers and now for us, and of course, praise God for the ongoing use of churches, of our children and their children until the day of the Lord. How? Well, through the writers of the New Testament. Those who preached the good news to you that Peter describes were, of course, Jesus and his apostles, commissioned by Jesus specifically for the task. We see this in great detail in Luke chapter 24, verses 44 to 49. This comes after Jesus had risen from the grave and was preparing to depart to the right hand of God. And he says, well, Luke records for us that Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be revealed. Jesus could see these things that Peter is now telling his readers. Jesus had told Peter these things that Peter is now telling his readers. And Luke goes on at verse 45. Then he, Jesus, opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. John records a similar moment, a little shorter. In chapter 20, verse 21, where it's recorded, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So just as the Spirit of Christ had been sent by God to speak through the prophets about the salvation of the Messiah before, Jesus then identified that God had similarly sent him which I imagine is the specific reason why Peter uses the spirit of Christ, which is very unique 
and then promised his apostles, his messengers, as he sent them out in the same way that God would continue to speak to his people by the power of the Holy Spirit in them. And as Joe read for us this morning, Peter had of course experienced this himself already and probably many times beside this by the time of writing the letter. But we see it clearly in Acts chapter 2 when he boldly declared and revealed the good news to the people of Jerusalem from the Old Testament prophets as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to do at Pentecost. A bit before the bit that we read is also a revelation of what Joel had said and how this was a fulfillment of that. And as a result, we see one united message of salvation from beginning to end. It had always been the plan of God and the work of the Spirit to draw his people to himself, to achieve these ends through the Son. As we saw at the very beginning of 1 Peter, where he wrote, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. In fact, it was from before the beginning of creation itself. If we go to Ephesians chapter 1, 3 to 4, where Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And I think some echoes there of some of the things that Jeremiah was saying in chapter 31. This, brothers and sisters, is awesome in the true sense of the word. And this is what we mean when we say that the scriptures are inspired. Why Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is breathed out by God. And why in the verse before that, In verse 15, he told Timothy, his apprentice pastor, that he should continue to firmly believe all the sacred writings, that is the Old Testament scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And this foundational truth that God's salvation for his people has been revealed according to the scriptures was a key element in the early Nicene Creed in the 4th century when the church put together a memorable statement aimed to help the people understand and remember what those scriptures said about who the true iron God is and what he had done to bring about the salvation of his people. A couple of excerpts. We read, He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures. And a bit later, and we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And of course, as things went sideways in the church over time, this truth became the cry of the Reformation too. Sola Scriptura. And we see the truth of the Holy Spirit's authorship of and the reliability of the Holy Scriptures in the Bible as the consistent understanding of the confessions of faith since. For example, the Westminster Confession of Faith in 1646 in part one speaks of this truth. The London Baptist Confession of Faith, part one in 1689. 
and the first clause of the New Hampshire Confession of Faith in 1833. In fact, the New Hampshire specifically draws on this passage that we are reading today. But each draw from Scripture to declare the inspiration, the accuracy, and the reliability of the Scriptures that we have concerning this salvation. And we continue this teaching in our own statement of faith at Clause 2, which you can check out as well. So, what do we do with this? Well, this takes me to my second point, perhaps confusingly. Our response to God's word can be awful. The word awful has an interesting etymology. From the root word of awe, the word awful has taken on two rather contradictory meanings. The first meaning, which is pretty archaic now, which is probably why when you read this you kind of go, huh? Is the one that perhaps is more along the expected definition when we think about what the word awe means. That is something that is inspiring or being filled with awe. That's the word awful in its more archaic meaning. You might use it in a sentence as, the view from the top of the mountain was truly awful. You could see for ages all around. It's really great to us in terms of how we use, this, <laughs> use the word. Because I suspect that in your everyday use, if you use the word awful, you don't tend to use it in that more positive way, except perhaps when you use it informally, perhaps more in a, an American English style, when we say it's awfully nice, or something along that nature, which, which is close. But, but the other use of the word, awful, in the more common use, particularly in Australia, is something that is extremely disagreeable or objectionable, such as the behaviour of the children was awful. They didn't listen to a thing I was saying all day. But they're listening now, I'm sure. <laughs> As we've seen this morning, the message of salvation revealed through the whole of Scripture is incredible. God's word that records it for us and declares it to us in the power of the Spirit is an awesome gift. So how do we respond? Are we filled with awe? Or do we have the more disdaining approach? that we see it as a bit disagreeable or objectionable. Well, let's start with being filled with awe. Now, I asked you earlier to think about something that brings or that inspires awe in you, something that you might describe as awesome. I'll just ask it rhetorically, but I wonder whether Scripture came to mind, whether that was something you thought, yeah, I just... This is definitely something that brings awe to me. Even if it wasn't, what do we do with things like that? What do we do when we find something that is awe-inspiring? Well, usually we seek it out, don't we? Once identified, we look for it again. And perhaps try and find it in bigger and greater measure to allow us to experience the awe over and over. I'm sure some of us here, are in, are <clears throat> hopefully most or many of us here, are in, are in agreement with me that the picture of the magnificence of Scripture is something like an amazing mountain 
where you can stand in awe and, and soak it up and see something that is amazing. I'm sure many of us, if not all of us here, love the message of the gospel and are thankful time and time again for how it speaks to the circumstances of our lives. We praise God for his mercy in making it possible for this good news to come to us. We stop and we soak in the beauty of the scene regularly. In thinking about responses at our church meeting last week, I I reflected on the story of the disciples who were traveling on the road to Emmaus the day after Jesus the day of Jesus rising from the grave, recorded earlier in Luke 24, from verse 13. The disciples were despondent. They had seen the death of Jesus, who they described as a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, but who had been condemned to death and crucified by the chief priests and rulers. As they walked, they shared with a stranger who walked with them on the journey, saying how they had hoped that this prophet would be the one to redeem Israel. But not only had he died, but when they went to the tomb that day, they couldn't find his body. Having been kept from recognizing Jesus for who he actually was, The stranger said to them, We're foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What a moment that might have been as Jesus explained through scripture how they reveal him. When they arrived at their location for the evening, they still didn't know that it was Jesus. They invited the stranger to stay on with them rather than walk further. And as they shared a meal together, Jesus broke bread, blessed it and gave it to them. And at that moment, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And Jesus vanished. And here is their response. They said to each other in verse 32, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, the way that they'd already come that day on their walk. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. When they heard the message of salvation presented through the scriptures, at that point the Old Testament scriptures, of course, their hearts burned within them. And they wanted to share. So much so that they returned on the journey that they had just traveled, presumably into the evening, so they could tell Peter and the other disciples and followers of Jesus. Now, as our members will be aware, and anyone that's been around for a while, this story, perhaps obviously, 
and particularly the response of the men as they heard the scriptures revealed to them is the reason we chose the name of our church. Emmaus Road Baptist Church. And why our logo is a path leading over a book, the scriptures to the cross. I hope that most of us will agree that it is incredible to think of the overall plan of the Bible. And this was and is, as a church, what we wanted our response to be. As together, we explored and mined the depths of the scriptures to understand the God revealed within them and the gracious salvation God has won for us. To see that we are God's chosen people, determined in the foreknowledge of God, set apart by the work of the Spirit for our obedience and our cleansing through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. It is an incredible, privileged position that we are in, living on this side of Jesus. That the prophets themselves didn't get to see the fulfillment of what each of them shared for us in their part of the Scriptures. In fact, this was something that Jesus himself noted in Matthew and in Luke. But Matthew 13, 16 to 17. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. And, of course, probably wondering when we're going to get there. This last little verse today with a curious little line about things that have now been announced to you through the Spirit, things into which angels long to look. Angels, of course, are the messengers of God and are tasked to do His bidding, to send His messengers, message, messages there's an aspect of how God has created them, though, that means they are different. They're in a different position to us as humans. And they do not, apparently, enjoy the opportunity to understand the revelation of salvation through the Scriptures. They long to look in and understand. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 3, 9-10, to that it is through the church that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. How we respond to the revealed gospel as a church is how God's salvation plan is revealed to the heavenly places. Just think about that for a minute. Does that inspire you to get into God's word with your brothers and sisters? To seek to understand God's salvation through it? To allow it to impact on us so much that it is evident that we are impacted by it? This truth that the angels long to know it and that we do is another one of those just incredible things that pops up in these three verses. What do we do 
with this amazing truth. Do we stand in awe of it? Or is it more the other definition of awful? Maybe not extremely disagreeable or or objectionable. But does our familiarity with God's word mean that we no longer long to look at the amazing things of God's good news like the angels long to do? Have we stopped searching and inquiring carefully as the prophets did? To continue my earlier picture of the awe induced by the side of a huge mountain, it may be that some of us here are, at least at the moment, struggling to see the grandeur of the scene that is spelled out for us. Struggling, perhaps with my presentation of it, to think, yeah, doesn't sound that great. Maybe there is some general agreement with the idea that it's a great gift to be given understanding of the scriptures, but driving by the mountain day after day, it's kind of making things a bit repetitive. I remember talking to a pastor in Alice Springs who drives out of his street and looks at the McDonald Ranges, and when you're close to them, they are pretty impressive. And I said it to him, I said, man, what, a, what an awesome view as you drive out of your street. He's like, Oh yeah, I guess it is. I was like, wow. Even something like that becomes mundane when you do it over and over. Is that how we approach scripture? Perhaps circumstances in your life have meant that you've had to take a detour. So you're not really able to see the mountain and stop and enjoy it for a while. Perhaps things are busy. Life is hard. Things are getting in the way. Crowding out your ability to stop and enjoy God's word. Well, maybe, maybe you've deliberately taken another route to keep from having the potential for awe to be inspired altogether. Perhaps the game that was once new and exciting becomes plain and a, a bit boring after a bit of playing. The cinema screen begins to be normal and you need a bigger one. In our sin-affected lives, we lose sight of the amazing reality that is the knowledge of salvation revealed to us in Scripture. We can allow the circumstances of our lives to crowd out the awe and wonder of this gift that the prophets only saw in part and even the angels long to look into and we start to grow cold and dull. Brother, sister, Resist that. It has been said that your focus will determine your affections. Faith-filled fighting will lead to a growth in your capacity to fight and resist. Peter was not backwards in saying how faith is involved in our understanding of this. He said it four times in the last um, number of verses. And that it is a gift from God. Exercise it. Remember Peter's words from verse 6. Our trials we experience are only if necessary. And verse 7, that their purpose is for further refining of our faith. Don't let them crowd out the awe that is the revelation of salvation 
in your life. But remember, it is only in Scripture and by faith that we can really see God. Beholding God is how we move away from sin. As James 4, 7 tells us, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Submit to God first. We do this together. The manifold wisdom of God is revealed in the one anothering of church members. We are here for that purpose, to encourage one another to do this. If you are further along the journey than another Christian, then demonstrate the wonder of God's word. Encourage people around you to seek God out in his revealed message of scripture. Make scripture part of your conversations. Point each other to the gospel regularly, whether it's helping people through conflict, helping each other through a difficulty, rejoicing in someone's happiness, or just just walking along the journey together. Go to scripture together. But above all, remember, it is the work of the Spirit. It always has been, as Peter's shown us, and it always will be. As someone pointing someone else to Scripture, don't make your own hope and happiness rest in your ability to see people over the line. Entrust that work to the Spirit. As someone being pointed and encouraged to go to Scripture, don't just look for the external factors to give you joy or or the right words from that person to kind of pep you up enough that the awe of God's word is still crowded out. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and find deep joy in your salvation in Christ. Go to Christ. Go to God's word. Find him there. As it was for the prophets of old and as it was for Peter's first hearers of the good news, so it is with us. The understanding that leads to salvation and the excitement and joy that should come from reading God's word is not a manufactured feeling. It is a work of the Holy Spirit. So above all, pray. As Paul says to the church in Thessalonica, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 14 to 18, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, Help the weak and be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil, anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Pray And saturate your life with scripture. This is why, as a church, when we gather, we read scripture. We sing scripture. We pray scripture. And we have scripture explained through our preaching and through the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and baptism. It warms my heart to hear my children quietly, sometimes loudly, singing God's words to themselves as they play. Allowing God to speak to their little spirits at a young age. Parents, use song with your kids. Find good music that they can enjoy. Sing along with them. Whether you can think you can sing or not. Demonstrate your joy in the words of the Lord to you and to them. 
As a church family, when we sing, sing as though you are declaring together the truths of Scripture. Because you are. Show the kids of our church that you believe the truths that we sing about. Show each other that we together believe the truths that we sing about. And kids, sing up, big and loud. Show us adults how it's done. I love it. I think Connor sometimes, we can hear you from the front sometimes when, this, when you know the words. This is great. Keep that up. God's word tells us to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with our heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Make Christ the focus of what we're doing. And that is, again, why we carefully think about what songs we sing. But don't worry if you're not as musically gifted as the person next to you. If the melody is hard at times. And to be fair, some of the old, old hymns can be tricky. Grab the ERBC playlist and listen to the songs. Practice singing them in the car, in the shower. Sing while you set up for church or while you clean up after the gathering, while the tunes are in your mind. Make it possible for you to sing with gusto when we gather together. We choose to sing these older songs, not because they are old and hard, but because of the rich way they proclaim God's word. And as an encouragement to us, as we stand together with saints of old, our brothers and sisters across time, and sing the same songs that they have gathered together to sing for hundreds of years, delighting together across time in the word of the Lord. Family, be in awe of God's word. Mine it for all it is worth. See the beauty of God's amazing plan, the mercy of God's saving grace, the mastery of the Spirit's work over time, and the magnificence of the God who is Lord and Father of all. And take hope in the promise that he will come again soon. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you for your revealed word. Thank you that you have preserved it for us. That by your spirit, the spirit of Christ, your prophets spoke into time and spoke for our benefit, revealing truths about who you are. Lord, thank you that you have not left those prophecies empty, but have fulfilled them in Christ. Lord, thank you that we now have the inspired word of your apostles, the words of you yourself, as we go to the pages of scripture. We are so thankful that it is so available to us. But God, we need to confess that there are times when we, we don't see it as awe-inspiring. God, we confess that there are times where 
we see other things as perhaps of greater value or at least of greater enjoyment. God, please forgive us for those times. God, would you build in us an awe of your word that is contagious, an awe in your word that causes our brothers and sisters to to have that same awe. Lord, would we be inspired by what you have done in your word as you have faithfully and mightily fulfilled all that you've said throughout time. And Lord, would we trust that you will continue to fulfill what remains. God, would you equip this church to do that? Would you equip the other churches of Darwin as they together seek to do that? Those churches who faithfully proclaim your word week in and week out who faithfully seek to encourage one another by that word to the love and good works that you've prepared for them. God, would we be a community of churches in this city that proclaims your good news and that demonstrates to the heavenly beings what your salvation looks like. God, we are thankful that you have made it possible for us to see it. And we pray that we would not neglect that great gift Would you be honoured in our lives together and individually as we go to your word and as we live out what is there to your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.